I'm your host, Jen Hale Christie, and this is season five. It's an interesting time to be alive. Um, 2020 has so far been filled with tragedy and horror, with pandemic and apocalypse, um, and also with great creativity and and gratitude um, and recognition of, of what we have. In this season, we bear witness to the stories of scripture interpreted in light of the unveiling that is happening all around us. May God grant us a spirit of kindness and humility with ears to listen and energy for the difficult work before us. Our guest preacher today is Claire Davidson Frederick from Nashville, Tennessee. Claire is an affiliate faculty member at Lipscomb University, and she also works for the Hazelip School of Theology there, also at Lipscomb, and she helps to lead All Saints Church in Nashville. Claire brings us a word today from the book of Ruth, which is found in the Old Testament. She brings us the good news that God often works through the marginalized, the scandalized, and the traumatized to bring about God's ultimate redemptive purposes. And she demonstrates how God works through an outsider to bring about the redemption of the insiders. Grab your favorite beverage, get cozy, and tune out the distractions. Now let's hear a word. I'm going to open today by reading from chapter one in the book of Ruth. Won't you follow along with me? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye And they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. 
Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. Now in that text, you heard the beautiful vow which Ruth makes to Naomi, pledging her loyalty and friendship. This text is often quoted at weddings expressing the love and devotion between future partners, but the original context of this verse is from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, Ruth, a foreigner who was from the land of Moab, to Naomi, an Israelite. Now for those of you who are unfamiliar with what happens next, I'm going to give a brief summary of chapter 2. As the scripture says, the two widows arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. And in order to support herself and her mother-in-law, Ruth goes out to the fields day after day and she gleans. What this means is she picks up the leftover stalks of grain that the reapers have left behind. Verse 3 tells us that as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to a man named Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, and this means he can help Naomi and Ruth to redeem or buy back the land that had belonged to their family prior to the famine. Boaz is kind and generous to Ruth because he has heard of her goodness and faithfulness towards her mother-in-law. Ruth tells Naomi of Boaz's honorable actions towards her, and Naomi encourages Ruth to stay on and glean in his fields throughout the remainder of the harvest season, where she will be safe. Chapter 2 ends with a note of anticipation and hope. I now pick up with this week's lectionary reading from Ruth 3, 1-5, and Ruth 4, 13-17. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been working, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. If I had to title today's lesson, it would be The Gospel According to Ruth. A friend of mine always says that we can't hear or receive the gospel, which is good news, without first hearing the bad news. And Ruth is a book that starts out with some very bad news. An entire family has been devastated by famine, displacement, and death, but these two stubborn widows stick to each other despite differences in their ages, their races, and their places of origin. Set within the context of the dark period of the judges, Ruth gives us the romantic origins of a kingly line. Because this poor, young, Moabite woman and the wealthy Israelite landowner, Boaz, will ultimately become the great-grandparents of King David. There are so many reversals of fortune going on in this story, so many twists and turns of what some might call fate. But when I read the book of Ruth, I see God's hands all over the drama, orchestrating and coordinating these fascinating outcomes. The first thing I notice about God in the book of Ruth is how utterly silent and invisible God seems to be. We don't get angels appearing or burning bushes or voices from heaven, no doves, no trailing robes through the temple. We do get people attributing things to God, blaming things on God, and recognizing God's work in hindsight. But overall, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a quiet and hidden character. And isn't that the way we experience God in our lives for the most part? This is a God who requires faith. You know the kind of faith I mean. That substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. God, though unseen, is constantly giving his people evidence that he is at work both in and through the circumstances of their lives. Ruth and Naomi experience God this way. When the famine in Bethlehem ends, it is God who has come to the aid of his people. When Ruth conceives little Obed, it is the Lord who enabled her to conceive. Sometimes the coincidental is simply God's way of showing up. I love the way the scripture reads in chapter 2, quote, As it turned out, unquote, Ruth found herself working in the fields of Boaz. Boaz just happens to be a relative of Naomi's, a kinsman redeemer who can marry Ruth and help the women buy back the family farm. What a coincidence, right? Or was it? 
I choose to believe it was the unseen but very active hand of God moving Ruth from where she had been to where God wanted her to be. By the end of the book, God's providential activity will change Ruth's status from that of an outsider to one who is squarely inside the covenant community, blessing it. She will go from widowed to married, from childless to fertile, and from a nobody to nobility. I remember hearing Beth Moore telling a story years ago about her relationship with God, where quite often she hears the voice of God directly speaking to her in her ear, clearly telling her to do something incredibly specific, like combing the hair of an elderly man in an airport who needed her help. Her job was simply to follow God's immediate verbal instructions. How often I wish I experienced God this way. However, any communication I receive from God seems to come in a less dramatic fashion, through the words of a friend or a beloved scripture or the lyric of a praise song that pops into my head first thing in the morning. I've experienced God through the hands of the doctors and nurses who brought my youngest daughter through heart surgery, not once, but twice. I've experienced the providence of God through a scholarship or a job offer or a circumstantial meeting with someone in the parking lot of the grocery store who just needed to talk to me that day. These are all things I could never have orchestrated or coordinated or made happen on my own if I tried. Ruth and Naomi experience God this way, through their circumstances and in relationship and community with one another, without a direct word from God about where on earth he was taking them. The second thing I notice about God in the book of Ruth is that God may allow life to empty us for reasons we cannot discern in the present moment. There may be a purpose in the future for our suffering, and maybe all things will indeed work out for good for those that love the Lord. But in the present moment, we can't see it. And no one else should attempt to assign meaning to our suffering while we're still in the midst of it. Naomi is awesome because she gives us permission to sit with our grief and be angry. Don't call me Naomi, she tells the women of Bethlehem. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? That name in Hebrew means pleasant. Call me bitter, she says. Call me bitter. I'm angry, and I'm changing my name. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I love the character of Naomi here because she is real and raw. She is you and me because we've all been there. And if we haven't yet, we will be at some point. Naomi is the remnant of Israel personified. Exiled in Moab for well over a decade, her entire family has been decimated by death, and she is the only one who was left. And she's bitter with God. She's blaming God. The Almighty did this to me. And don't try to comfort me with platitudes and Romans 8.28. I imagine many of us can relate to her feelings of grief 
loss, and uncertainty during this unprecedented time in our global history. The coronavirus pandemic has already killed nearly 300,000 people around the world, over 80,000 of those deaths in the U.S. alone. Unemployment numbers in our country hit a record high last month, with 21 million jobs lost during April of 2020. Financial stress abounds. Loved ones are dying alone in hospitals and nursing homes. Churches are closed, and funerals may only be attended by 10 members of the immediate family at the most. The racial and economic disparities among the victims who suffer both physically and financially add additional grief to the mix. This COVID-19 crisis has exposed the structural injustices that have always existed in American society. They are now laid bare for all who have eyes to see. We are living through a lonely, devastating, disruptive, and grief-filled era. It makes us want to cry out in protest like Naomi or shake our fist at the Almighty in heaven. It reminds me of a prayer that my good friend John Mark Hicks prayed shortly after the shocking death of a 19-year-old college student in 2012. He pleaded, Lord, why don't you take your hands out of your pockets and do something? You see, we've been raised to not question God or challenge God, but this form of lament is so very biblical. Scripture is full of this kind of testimony of the psalmists pleading, Why, O Lord? Of the prophets asking, How long, O God? Of Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken us? These faithful but bitter Bible people give us permission to voice the depth of our pain and free us to move through our grief. The language of lament is powerful, and God can certainly handle our anger. Naomi gives us permission to voice our hurts because the truth is when we lose our loved ones, it hurts, and we want the Lord to do something about it. Someday God will do something about it. Revelation promises us that all things will be made new. For some of us, God may even fill our empty hearts and hands again this side of heaven. But for others, they're still waiting. People of God, the exile experience is our spiritual reality. We are strangers and aliens journeying through a foreign land. We've left Moab, but we're not quite to Bethlehem yet. God is making all things new. Yes, one day God will put all things to rights, but we haven't yet seen the consummation of this new creation, and so we wait. Naomi is fortunate, though. By the end of chapter 4, she will go from empty to full, from homeless to secure, from exiled to redeemed, and from bitter to sweet. The truth is that even in the midst of Naomi's grief, God has continually provided for her. In the person of Ruth, who is better to her than seven sons, God also gives blessings to Naomi in the person of Boaz, who will do the right thing by these women. Boaz will fulfill his word, 
redeem their land, and secure an identity for them that they could not secure for themselves in that time and culture. And finally, God will fill Naomi's lap once again with a baby. After the marriage of Ruth to Boaz, the baby Obed is born, and the women speak of him as Naomi's son, chapter 4, verse 17. And isn't that ironic? It's as if God gives a silent, providential answer to the rhetorical question Naomi had posed in chapter 1, am I to have any more sons? God's answer is yes. God had allowed Naomi to be emptied so that she might be filled with what God had in store for her. And so there is hope for us too, that even in our periods of exile, in our times of emptiness and estrangement, in our moments of being mad at God, that God is not finished with us yet. There is more to come. In closing today, I'd like to say one more thing about the way God seems to be working through these texts. It's almost as if God prefers using outsiders, widows, and marginalized people as foils to the supposedly righteous folks inside the covenant community. Like the widow in Mark 12, verse 44, who gives everything that she has, She's contrasted with the Pharisees who preyed upon the poor, were lovers of money, and who devoured widows' houses. Never, ever, ever discount the outsider, because often this is exactly who God likes to work with and through. Deuteronomy 23.3 tells us that no Moabite and none of their descendants, not even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the house of the Lord. Ruth was from Moab. She was part of this unrepresented and excluded tribe. And yet, providentially and ironically, God saw fit to use her to be a grandmother to kings, kings who would one day build the house of the Lord. And it just gets better from there because Ruth is also an ancestor and part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In fact, Ruth is one of only four women that Matthew lists in his genealogy. But why these women? Ruth, a migrant worker in the fields of Boaz. Rahab, a Canaanite and sex worker during the time of the conquest. Bathsheba, a woman that King David unlawfully sent for, committed sexual misconduct against, and impregnated. Women like Tamar, another foreigner to the covenant community, who did what she had to do when the religious men in her life let her down. Why these women, women who were outsiders and foreigners, women who used their bodies to eke out an existence and whose bodies were used by men for sexual gratification? I believe Matthew includes these scandalized, marginalized, and traumatized women to give us a hint about the way in which this God of ours likes to work. God has always, always chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the weak things of this world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27 You see, in the upside-down economy of the kingdom of God, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first, 
Even the family tree of Jesus Christ highlights this reality. Because God is going to use the foolish, the forgotten, the foreign, and the empty to birth this Savior of ours into the world. God is using Israel, sure, but God is also using outsiders to facilitate the redemption of those inside the covenant community. Today, when I look around at the American church, I see that we are getting so many things wrong. We've let things like white supremacy, pride, greed, consumerism, nationalism, and any number of isms come between us and the real mission of God in Jesus Christ. On issues of racial and social justice, the church needs to be the headlights leading the way, but too often we're trailing far behind the world. Young people see our hypocrisy and frequently cite this as their reasons for leaving church. When Judah was confronted with his own failure to live up to God's sacred covenant, he simply said this about scandalized Tamar. Behold, she is more righteous than I. When confronted with our own moral failings today, may we be honest like Judah and recognize our own spiritual need and the possibility that the church's redemption lies in the inclusion of the outsider, in the righteousness of the other, and in the faithfulness of the foreigner. Amen. Hello, Claire Davidson Frederick, and welcome to the Preacher Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you so much for that beautiful sermon from Ruth. I loved it. Thank you. It's always been a favorite book of mine. Okay, before we get into the sermon, let's talk about where you are and what your life looks like. I feel bad. I always ask people, you know, I I keep qualifying it now. What did it look like before the quarantine? But you can share whatever you'd like to share. Well, um, as we were just talking about before catching up a little bit, um, this is, I'm, I'm in the final year of my doctor of ministry uh, with McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago. And so I finished my coursework in January and I'm, this is my writing year. Um, so my project kind of got derailed actually by the coronavirus. Um, I am the, I'm the director of the Engage Youth Theology Initiative at Lipscomb University. And that's basically a summer camp that introduces teenagers to some of the civil rights history in our country and holds conversations around race and racial unity in the church. Um, All of those camps got canceled. So consequently, my demon project got switched to a new subject. Um, But it's a subject I also love, um, which is my home congregation, All Saints Church of Christ. Um, That's where I serve as the worship pastor. And I've been doing that for three and a half years. So I'm going to talk about what it means to be church in a virtual format as we go through this crisis of the uh, the pandemic. That is so great. I know there are a lot of people, I mean, everybody's scrambling to figure out how to do church online right now. So I love that there's a researcher among us. I'm sorry, my kids are in the background. We're all quarantined. Um, I love that there's a researcher among us who's who's looking at this and saying, what are we doing? How are people being formed? What's effective? Um, So I know you still have a lot to sort out in terms of the questions that are guiding your research, but I'll be really interested to, to hear more about it. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to figuring out 
you know, what the question is basically that I'm trying to answer. And I think it is about spiritual formation and what it means to be the body of Christ, even, even virtually. And how do we not leave behind, you know, folks in our congregations who are 65 and up and who are medically fragile, um, you know, or immunocompromised. We don't want to just rush back to church and not still have something of community to offer those populations. So that's, and I have a daughter who's also medically fragile. So that's a big question in my mind is, you know, how do we, um, how do we include uh, people again and not marginalize them during this time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, it's an, it's an interesting opportunity that we have right now, um, you know, an experiment in church without the building um, that, you know, how are we still the body, even if we're not all together. And I think it's helping us to to kind of divorce the idea of church from a physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there, I think there's some good there, some potential good there. Right. And I love, how, yeah. I love how people have reframed it that, you know, the, the church is not closed. The church is the people mm-hmm. and we are still open for each other and for spiritual formation and for proclaiming the gospel. It's just that we're not doing it in a brick and mortar space. Um, but it's actually got opportunities too. I mean, one of the things I've noticed is our, uh, our attendance has been up since being online and we've had visitors from Vienna, Austria and uh, Kenya and, you know, New Hampshire and South Carolina. And so people are popping in online that would normally not have a chance to visit all saints. So that's been a blessing too, just to have community beyond the bounds of what we normally experience. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So let's shift gears and talk about your sermon. Okay. Um, so I know you said that Ruth is one of your favorite books and that definitely came through. Um, I, I love how you talked <clears throat> about how the stories of these people, how the, the I think you called them the Bible people, um, how they kind of give us permission, um, permission to express our anger towards God, that, that God can handle our anger. And, and in some cases, you know, especially the Psalmist, they give us um, words that we can use to cry out to God. And, and you talked about the tension of, of living in this in-between time where we know that God is one day going to put all things to right, but we're not there yet. Um, right. And how God continues to provide, like how, you know, in the example of Naomi, um, we see in the story, Naomi calling God out, like God's left mm-hmm. me behind, God's forgotten, you know? Um, but at the same time, you kind of, you know, look a little closer and see how God's providing for her. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I love how you said the church needs to be the headlights. And I don't know if that's a clear original or if you found that somewhere, but I love it. The the church needs to be the headlights, but too often we are trailing the world. Right. That was Martin Luther King that said that, that called us out, you know, especially the white moderate Christians that, you know, we weren't on the front lines of justice in the fifties and sixties. And we should have, because the Bible is full of justice and mercy. And those are the weightier matters of the law. And so, you know, we, we're called to, to pursue that, you know, that is part and parcel of the gospel. It's not separate from it. So. Um, Absolutely. Did he say headlights though? I want to say that. I know that David Fleer quotes him all the time and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that he's quoting Martin Luther King Jr. We'll have to consult David Fleer. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll, we'll fact check that quote. <laughs> um, no, but I, yeah, one of the I think one of the biggest problems in the church today is like that we just rush people through their bad feelings too quickly, you know, mm-hmm. and in a season like the one we're in now with the coronavirus epidemic, we've there's a lesson here. We just need to sit 
we need to learn how to sit with folks in their grief. Yeah. Right. Because the grief is, is palpable. It's real yeah. right now. And um, I think we're just so often too anxious to get to the redemptive part of the story, mm-hmm. like the Romans eight twenty eight moment that we just push through these negative feelings and grief and anger and sorrow. And, and we want to jump to assign meaning to someone else's suffering, which is not our, really not our job. You know, yeah. Jesus was, what Jesus did was to be present with people in their suffering and to just sit and hold space for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he didn't promise, promise to fix all our earthly problems, but he promises us to be present with us in the midst of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think we've got to learn how to just sit with people sometimes in the hard moments of their life. Um, yeah, I think yeah. for so many of us, it just doesn't come naturally. We're so, so uncomfortable with just sitting with something really hard, really heavy, really sad. We don't know how to just sit with it. You know, whether that's we need to say something to try to alleviate that discomfort or we need to try to fix something. Like mm-hmm. we just, we don't know how to do it, how yeah. to sit with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it thinks, I think too, sometimes like in the church, we rush people to forgiveness too soon. Mm. That's another thing, you know, especially women who've been in abusive situations or f- even folks who have been hurt by the church or church leaders specifically, you know, we rush people to forgiveness in our, in our hurry to restore a leader who has fallen or who's has damaged a congregation by their moral failing. We, we expect members of that church to forgive before they are ready to. Mm or before they feel safe to do so. So yeah, there can be like in clergy sex abuse, right? That's happened not only in other denominations, but in our own. And there can be a type of toxic forgiveness that overlooks the victim and what they've experienced and rushes past their pain Mm -hmm. and overlooks it in the name of centering kind of the restoration of of the leader. Mm -hmm. But But actually affects further abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So... I, I love how <clears throat> how in your sermon you focus on the outsider and and um, you you know you talk about that throughout. But I, I wrote down the quote that you said at the end, mm-hmm. so beautiful. Um, you said you said maybe maybe be honest, maybe recognize mm-hmm. our own spiritual need, and the possibility that the church's redemption lies in the inclusion of the outsider, the righteousness mm-hmm. of the other, and the faithfulness of the foreigner. Um, I think it's such an important word. Um, And at the same time, for some of us, we can hear that and say, yes, definitely. And then when, when flesh is put on that idea, we don't see it for what it is. Um, So I I don't know, is there, is there a flesh and bones example of this that you can point to and say this, this is where God is working to redeem the church. Maybe we have eyes to see I mean, I see, I think all the time, you know, we think we have, Christians, you know, that we've cornered the market on God, but I, I see folks all the time, especially in, in activist communities, you know, who may not even identify as Christians and they're doing more what we would call kingdom work per capita, right? Feeding the hungry, visiting mm-hmm. the sick, working on behalf of, of incarcerated persons, you know, and they're doing more of that type of activist um, justice work than, than church going folks are doing. And again, I, you know, we're, this ties into our being so married to the building, right? And what happens at Mm. the building. And that's where we think the work of the church is. And really we need to turn outward and see that, 
you know, um, the work of justice in the world and, and feeding those who are hungry right now, right? The, the food insecure in the story of Ruth are right in front of us right yeah. now, right? Um, there's a famine in the land <laughs> and <laughs> folks are going without. And so how can we, you know, gospel work is feeding the hungry. It's manning those food banks and, and church again should be the headlights in this. We shouldn't, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have partners in nonprofit uh, industries, but, but we should be um, leading also and not just again, trailing to catch up to the work they're already doing. Yes. Um, yeah. So the words, yeah. And I'm, it reminds me of what I said about Judah's words about Tamar, yeah. you know, who is this scandalized Canaanite woman, right? She was an outsider, but she was more righteous than I, he says. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to, you know, shame on us if the world is getting it right in ways that we are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lesson there. We can learn from, from folks, uh, outsiders, really. Yeah. Okay, Claire, is there anything else that you want to share with us about the sermon, about how it's working on you? Well, as I was thinking on, on the way Ruth, is, the book of Ruth is speaking to me now, you know, as we continue to look for where God is in all of this, um, namely the coronavirus pandemic, you know, I, I thought about how God never speaks in the book of Ruth. You know, there's no theophanies, there's no direct word from God. And so people are, you know, assigning their own meaning to, to circumstances and looking for where the hand of God has been at work. And it's always usually in hindsight that we mm-hmm. see it. Um, but so, you know, I, I keep thinking of Naomi, though, and she's looking for a sign of hope, mm-hmm. right? She hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem which literally means house of bread. And so she goes where the food is, where the hope is, mm. um, and where there is sustenance to be had. And so I think we can, we can be like Naomi. We can be both bitter and still keep moving in the direction of hope and home. You know, both yeah. things are possible. Uh, so yeah, that's one of the things I get from this. Yeah, I love that. Again, with the tension that we can at the same time be bitter and also be faithful. You know, mm-hmm. be like, uh, like you said about John Mark Hicks with the, you know, God, why do you have your hands in your pockets? But it doesn't mm-hmm. mean we're turning away. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And we're in the middle of so many unknowns, but still we can be people of hope and also hold, hold space for the hurting uh, among us. Yeah. What a beautiful word. Well, thank you so much for, um, for being with us, for your sermon, for the energy and the time that you put into that, for your good work with Engage and, and with all saints, with this, this dream that God put on your heart to start a faith community in a different way, a different, you know, kind of outside of institutional structures um, that are known. Um, so it's beautiful. And I thank you. And I just encourage you and pray blessings over your work. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate the chance to be with you today. You bet. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. 
You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.